we shall start today in Exodus 27, verse 1. We're pretty well doing a chapter a week, basically, is what we're doing. And we're on the study of the tabernacle, really. Uh, But really, we're studying Jesus Christ. Because that's really what the tabernacle is about. A lot of details in here, but we're really seeing the antitype or the very object of what this is all about. It's, it's the person of Christ. The very subject matter is Christ. This today is called the place of refuge. And if you've read ahead and you've gone ahead and done chapter 27, you can say, well, I don't see how you get the place of refuge out of this. Well, hopefully we can bring that to light as we go through here. Now let's take it back to where we've been. In Exodus you see the children of Israel. They're in bondage to Egypt. Moses is raised up by God to deliver them out. The ten plagues happen. And then we know about the crossing of the Red Sea. Everybody knows that story, right? And then God delivers them uh, through the desert, provides food, provides water. And now He wants to show Himself more than He has before. Don't you always want more of Christ? Don't be settled with what you know now. Go for more. The water is there. Take it in. And so that's what He's showing them. By the tabernacle, which is actually... Uh, a real physical thing that they could see and touch and feel. They experienced this. They experienced the presence of God without really seeing Him, but they, they knew He was there with them. And so God does this. This is God's ways. This is learning about God's ways. Is that what you guys like? You like to learn about God's ways rather than man's ways? Well, man's ways is filling us completely with a bunch of stuff that's lies or just worthless if it's not anchored on the truth of God's Word, right? And so they'll give it to you through TV and through uh, all sorts of other media, books and and, uh, commercials and internet and go on and on and on. They're telling you this is the way that you want to live life. Well, right here, as we look at Scripture, this is truth. So do you want truth or do you want something that will help you get through a couple of hours and then what do you do next? Right? I mean, this is everlasting stuff. This is the real thing. He is what He is, and He does what He does. And that's what we want to look at. So the tabernacle, it's a great teaching tool. We're going to learn how to approach and worship God. That's what the people were saying there. They're realizing this is how you do it. He's a holy God. A holy God is uh, transcendent that's making uh, Himself approachable. By, to His people. He's making a way approachable that they hadn't had before. He always wants His people to follow His instructions on how you worship Him, though. And He gives it right in here. And, of course, we know that that is all typology. We don't go through the tabernacle and, and, and do the things that the priest did and, and such anymore. That's been fulfilled but yet there still is a proper way to worship God. And it's, it's all about the Word of God, isn't it? And so he gives instructions. They don't have to make it up on their own. I wonder what he meant by this. It was right there, exactly what the dimensions were to be, what kind of materials they would use, the, where it was to be put. So everything was there. All they have to do is follow it. But there's always somebody, and we'll see that as time goes on, that wants to do something a little bit different. And that doesn't work, does it? And uh, God will get angry whenever there is wrong worship. 
We are sinners. We need a mediator. There's only one mediator, right? That being the person of Christ. We need a sacrifice to get in the right relationship with God because we, no matter what we do and how we do it, will not please God. We have to go through Christ, right? He's the one that does it. We need that sacrifice. We need something done with our sins. This is my problem, right? I have a sin problem. It's weighted on me. Before I come to Christ, I have that. It has to be taken care of. The first thing we see as we enter into the tabernacle, we're going to have a lot of pictures today dealing with uh, this issue, is the braz- it's a brazen altar. That's the first thing you're going to see. When you see a brazen altar, you have to think sacrifice. The first thing that you can do to get into the approachability of God is that there has to be a bloody sacrifice. And there was. There had to be death. That's what the brazen altar was about. If you brought a little lamb that you had had as a favorite, almost a pet, you've seen this lamb grow up in um, your household, and now all of a sudden you take this perfect spotless lamb to the brazen altar, you are the one to slit its throat and then the priest takes that blood and then uh, applies it. A perfect lamb that you had grown attached to. There had to be death, a sacrifice. It's a place of death, this altar is. It's a place of judgment. It's a place to flee to. We run to the altar It's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety for God's people. Because it's the only place sins can be dealt with. No other place is sin dealt with. Okay, today the altar is who? Christ. It is He who we flee to. We flee to the cross. What's the cross all about, right? Well, we see that the sins are dealt with right there. We are made right with God. We are declared righteous because of that cross if we trust in that work. This is where we find our peace. You want peace? That's where we find it. Peace with God. The peace of God. So we have true safety there at a place that is a place of judgment and death. That's where we find our safety. No matter what turmoil that's going around you in your life, And I mean, it can be immense. It can be uh, terrible. It's something that you just can't understand. How do I get out of this? But at the same time, the altar, the cross, is the answer to all of our problems. All of our problems. We go back to the cross. We see what He did. We see that that's where things are taken care of. Was the altar a key piece in the tabernacle? Yes. It was major. It was a major component of getting the sin taken care of. We'll observe the courtyard today, which is all of this area right in here, all the way up to the tent around there where the, the, uh, these linen uh, material uh, are, all the way around. That's that fence. And uh, we're going to also see the light that's in the tabernacle. And that's three things that we'll look at today. This whole tabernacle is really a picture of Jesus Christ. And if you were to start right here, and this is one way in, nowhere else can you get in, and you go all the way back to the back, you see a line, but you'll also see that there is a parallel 
horizontal line here, I mean, it goes across. And the cross is there. Christ is there. This is what we are getting at. Um, I'm going to read a few verses here. And when I read it, I know you're going to say, what? Here we go with all these dimensions again. But there's something to this. 27 verse 1. You shall make an altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its altars. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay it with bronze. There's two key, three key words there. Altar, horns, bronze. Okay? Also, you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. All right, you guys have the rest of the day to memorize that uh, section, and I'll be calling you tonight <laughs> to see your memory work. This is not favorite uh, memory verses that kids learn, is it? But it's important. It's God's Word. Matter of fact, it's very important. You say, well, how are we going to get a spiritual lesson out of this today? Okay, well, we're, we're at the altar, right? First thing, we want refuge. Refuge requires sacrifice. So when you come to the altar, there has to be a sacrifice there. That's what it's about. Very first article. You walk in the fence, there it is. You're looking at it. The sacrifice. The altar. It's known as the altar of bronze. The altar of burnt offering. The uh, the outer altar. Um, you have your Bibles? Let's turn uh, to Leviticus. We're in Exodus. It's the very next book over. Leviticus chapter 4. Oh, this is deep stuff. Leviticus. How many times have you read Leviticus? <laughs> Sometimes people start reading uh, Genesis and they read through and Exodus and they do pretty good and they start bogging down and then boom, they hit Leviticus. Okay, that'll be the next book we study. No, <laughs> We'll probably take our time after Exodus and... Go to New Testament for a while. Verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now there's your bronze altar when it mentions horns. That's like these on the four corners. They're putting blood on the altar uh, and or, uh, on the horns of the altar, but that's called a burnt offering. There, right? This is the place of burnt offering of the altar of bronze. If you look at Exodus chapter twenty-nine, we're in twenty-seven today, right? In chapter twenty-nine, verse forty-two and forty-three, it says, "This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you." He says, "Before you go into that tabernacle proper, here." Moses is this burnt offering. How often is it to be burnt? Always. It's always a sacrifice, continually going. Until Christ. That's what they did. They kept that thing going. That's what they were supposed to do. They had to do that. That, that meant there had to be sacrifice. There had to be something done for, for your sins. 
Turn to Exodus 29, verse 15. We're in that same chapter, right? You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram. You shall take its blood and sprinkle it around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. This is a good thing. It's happening morning and day and night. It's an example of the kinds of offerings that are going there. You have lamb, you have rams, uh, you have bulls, you have goats. Blood is being offered constantly. Smoke going up. That is an intricate piece of furniture. Now, I don't think we've ever seen an altar. We're looking at one there that actually exists There is one in Israel where we have some pictures of, and then they have one down in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, called the Great Passion Play, uh, which is uh, that right there. For no, 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 that's actually in Israel, the one that was just shown there. Uh, That's that's good. That's that's Israel also. Here, here we're entering in, and they have a uh, kind of a ramp that goes up there to where the priest could take and uh, and you could take that sacrifice to them, and uh, then. On into the tabernacle is where that's at. You can't go any further than that altar, though. That's it. If you're just a regular person, okay, and not a priest. Now, I don't think we've ever really seen one. Even though churches sometimes say, "Come to the altar," or "There's the altar up there." The altar really doesn't exist anymore. No matter how much people can build and make them, the thing is that Christ is the altar. We don't have a need for that sacrifice anymore. It has been done. That's the whole teaching of what this is about in the New Testament, that covenant. Uh, it's seven and a half feet by four and a half feet. I want you to think about it. Everybody likes uh, probably likes barbecue, right? I mean, a real barbecue where you have, um, you know, you think of a grill. This thing's a grill. This is a, uh, it's a giant barbecue grill. Matter of fact, I think it'd be one mean, giant grilling machine. You know what I'm talking about? George Foreman can't even make one like that. He doesn't have that. Can you see that at Walmart? He can't even touch that kind of barbecue grill. Uh, This barbecue was to, to worship God. You know, we love barbecues, right? Good food and fellowship and all that. Well, this is about worshiping God. It's an altar which sacrifices are burned in homage to God. The sacrificial animal would be roasted to the Lord. Okay, you're actually roasting this. The smoke is going up. It's smoke with a soothing aroma to the Lord. Okay, now I'm sure you guys like the smell of a barbecue, right? The neighbors down the street are barbecuing. Oh, I mean, I, you know, we can smell it now. Spring is on its way, guys. You know, we have sunshine out there today. It's not green out there yet at all. It's not close. But, you know, within a few weeks, I'll probably be saying, look at that, green grass. reminds you of new life, you know. I mean, we're getting more sunshine. And it's getting a little warmer, you know. Not here yet, but... About this time, you can start smelling barbecue around. The smell of steaks on the grill, right? Sounds like a good thing for all of us to do today. <laughs> Soothing aroma to God. But it's not because God's going to have dinner. But what it means. He's pleased in the sacrifice that's being done. 
because it's picturing the ultimate sacrifice that is to come. Now, another thing, what's it made of? Well, it's bronze. It's, it's actually, it's an altar made of wood. But, if you have wood and you're grilling, how long do you think that wood's going to last? So you put something over it. It's called bronze. It's overlaid with that. The further one gets away from the sanctuary, uh, when you get in there, you start getting gold and silver. The colors, you actually have a colorful uh, door there into the tabernacle that's actually that, that great big veil. Then there's another veil on inside. But uh, that's, that's where we're at there. Um, the further you get away and get further away from that tabernacle, the less the materials come as far as value. You have gold and silver in there. And now all of a sudden you have bronze out here. Which would you rather have? If you're in the Olympics, do you want gold or silver or bronze? Well, bronze is okay. You know, if you get a medal, you know, and that counts on the medal count. Helps the United States win, right? But you'd rather have a gold, but there's something... There's something that really I think is valuable about about this. Uh, if you put gold out there uh, on the altar, how long is that going to last? It's going to melt, isn't it? That's not the place for the gold. It's very practical because of the use of fire. You have fire going here all the time. The closer you are, though, to the symbolic presence of God, the more the expense of the metals. That's how beautiful God is. The closer you get to Him, are you seeing a practical lesson here? closer you get to Christ, the more valuable you see He who He is. If He doesn't mean anything to you right now, what you're doing, you're accepting bronze or less. Lenin, go a little bit further, and you don't even see anything about Him. You have no interest in Him. But don't you want to know Don't you want to see the great value of who He is? And then when you see His value, what else do you see then? The proper value of yourself in Christ. Now, and you know what? Bronze is also identified with judgment. Remember, this is a place of judgment, right? Your sins are being judged there. That's what it's picturing. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. You have a picture of Jesus Christ. This is probably the best picture in all the Bible of who Christ is. We know we have the tabernacle. Great picture. But here we have Him standing with John, the apostle, who knew Him, and he saw Him somewhere in the, at the end of the first century. He saw Jesus Christ. And look at verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, feet are like fine brass. Brass speaks of judgment or bronze. It's the same thing. Same thing to talk about. And this would take you back to uh, the Old Testament. This would take you back to uh, where we're at here today. Um, so anyway, we know the altar burnt offering is covered with brass. Its utensils are made of the same material. And this is glowing hot as John sees this uh, as a just as a, uh, like a furnace. So it's it's dealing with judgment. So, now we we, we keep looking at this altar. We keep thinking about it. Worshippers are identified with the sacrifice. 
That's part C on your outline if you're looking at that. We are identified with the sacrifice. Okay, here's the picture. You're an Old Testament saint. You're bringing your lamb in there because you want your sins forgiven today. Something over the past week or something over the year. The priest would lay their hands on the head of the lamb. Now, can a lamb have any spots on it? Any blemishes? Nope. You bring that up there, it's not acceptable. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. Now, Christ was perfect, right? None of us could ever be a sacrifice. We're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? Okay. When the priest would take that lamb and then lay the hands on its head, it symbolized the transfer of the priest's sin and even the people's. That, that would be their revolt against this holy God. That's what sin really is. And he's identifying, he's taking that sin and it's symbolically being transferred to the Lamb. You guys catching that? My sin is being transferred. This is like the great exchange. That's what happens at the cross. My sin goes on the cross. His righteousness comes to me. Here, sin has been symbolically transferred to the animal. The animal is killed. He's killed in place of the priests and the people. That's, that's uh, an atonement that happens sacrificially in the place of priests are men just like us. Right? They're just men. When you go back to the Old Testament, see those priests, that's all there. They're guilty in God's court. We are guilty. They, they, they sin just like the rest of the people sin. As it says in Hebrews, Hebrews 5.3, because of this, the priest is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Now, Christ was the great high priest. He had no sin. But an animal has to die in place of them. The penalty for sin is what? Death. That's why God demands the death of the animal. And since God is just, He is perfectly just, He will never overlook sin, will He? Even one little bitty white lie. If that's all you ever did in your life, (laughs) I would be amazed. If that's all you ever did, He could not overlook that little white lie. You are doomed to the wrath of God. That's just because of the nature. There has to be death. Since God is just, He has to be consistent, and the penalty is deserved by all of us. So through the altar of burnt offering, God depicts a vivid picture of His strict judgment because He is perfect. He demands perfection. Sin deserves death. And if sinful human beings are going to approach His presence, who is the sinless one, who is perfect, and He is just, then the punishment must be meted out upon an approved substitute. At that time, the substitute were the animals. Is that true today? No. What is our substitute? Christ. It was done. Leviticus chapter 1, 1 through 9. Check this out. 
Starting in verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying... Now this is when Moses was in the tabernacle. Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them what I'm telling you. Go, go tell them. Tell them this. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, when you bring that offering, okay, and they must listen to this, you, can, you cannot make up your own way to worship God. That's called idolatry. Okay? You shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, there's the burnt sacrifice there, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. That's because he wants to do this, right? Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priest. Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar, that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar, lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head, the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. That is the symbolism of what happens at the cross. Here's what was to be done. Here's how you would do it. God gives them the instructions and there's the transfer of sin. Here's the great exchange happening right there at the altar. Now another thing it means then is bloodshed. It means death. That is the sacrifice. The golden altar inside the tabernacle which you wouldn't see where the, there is incense brought on, there's no death there. There's, there's, there's blood inside. But the golden altar of incense in the holy place, this place right here is bloodshed and death. That's where this happens here at, at this place. Hebrews 9.22 says, Almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins unless there is blood shed. Are we getting that picture? They got it every day, constantly. Blood had to be shed. Okay, now the Lord says in Exodus, that's where we've been at lately, right? Exodus 25, verse 8. Are you with me here? here? Here's the whole key. He says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Let them make a sanctuary. I dwell among the, the tabernacle. That's where He wants to dwell. That's what He's going to do among His people. In order for Him to dwell there, uh, and for the people to come in there to dwell in His presence, they must have access. And that access is only granted for those whose sin has been paid for. Their access is going to be gone further in by other people, but it's a substitute sacrifice. If you were to have tried to approach God apart from these directions, this prescription here, and even if you were a priest, which later on we'll see uh, the sons of Aaron do this in a way that was unholy. They did their own thing. They kind of made it up. God would have taken you out. And He did. It has to be the prescribed way. The only safe haven for anybody when they came to the altar and had their sins atoned for was by a substitute animal. Without the altar, you're on your own. How would you guys like to be on your own? 
And now it's up to you and your good works. Well, you're already dead. You're done for. Because there's nothing else you can do. You, you can wipe the slate clean and say, okay, from here on, it's up to me. Well, before you walk out of here, you've probably done something <laughs> in your thoughts that haven't been exactly uh, accountable to God. Maybe, maybe not. But by the end of the day, there's going to be something there. Probably. Maybe by the end of next week? The end of the month? <laughs> uh, he has a way. The altar was a home. It was safety. You don't get the punishment you deserved when you trust in that sacrifice. If you're really trusting in it. This is the place you're forgiven. And this is what the sacrificial animal did for you. Now how about the horns of the altar? I think this is rather fascinating. The horns. The altar. Well, what are we talking about? You ever read these passages and go, hmm, I'm going to read this and get on through and move on. Read through the Bible in a year. These horns, which there are four of them, there's a few reasons for that. One would be the fact that they smeared the blood upon the horns there. There's another one that you would bind the beast, the animal, to the altar. Um, a cord would be attached to him and on that horn where he wouldn't be wandering around or taking off and getting out of there. You've got to tie him up. So that would be another reason for the horn. Uh, Psalm 118.27 talks about tying the cords around the horns of the altar with that animal. Psalm 118.27. I didn't read that, but that's where it's at. There's another reason, and here's where we get to the title of the day. The horns on the altar. It's the place you flee for mercy. What? It's the place of safety. It's the place of refuge. Do you remember in Exodus 21 which talked about if somebody killed somebody and it was an accident, what would happen to that person? Well, somebody might go after him and try to kill him, even if it was an, uh, an accident. You've heard of manslaughter? Something along that line. Let's say you're in a car and you're driving and somebody's with you and you have an accident and they die. You know, you could be held responsible. Somebody might want to come out and, and get you for that. You know, they were close to them or what have you. Well, there was a place that you could go to to flee, and that would be a city of refuge. But if you were right there at the tabernacle, before those cities are even built, before they go into the promised land, what do they have? Well, they have the horns on the altar. And if you accidentally kill somebody, you go fleeing to that altar and hang on the horns. So how can that save me? Um, There has to be a, a proper trial. God wants that trial. He doesn't want somebody to kill anybody until the trial happens. You know, everybody is considered to be innocent until proven guilty. Does that sound like our system? It's supposed to be. Now, okay, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 1. Interesting, this actually happened and it involved Solomon. Not that he committed it, but he might want to kill somebody. 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 49. Or somebody else might want to kill him. You have Solomon. He has, he's a king. He has a brother. It says in verse 49, So all the guests who were with Adonijah, that's the one who Solomon might be chasing after, were afraid and rose, and each one went his way. Now Adonijah was afraid of Solomon 
So he arose and went and took hold. Here we go. What did he take hold of? The horns of the altar. Why? And it was told Solomon saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. We'll, we'll uh, put him in court. We'll, we'll test this out. So King Solomon sent them to bring him down from the altar. And he came and fell down before King Solomon. Solomon said to him, Go to your house. So there was a place of safety until they could see what Solomon was going to do with him there. And uh, that's what Adonijah did. He went, he fleed, he fled, right? He fled to the horns and hung on it. Solomon showed mercy. That's a picture of Christ, isn't it? Adonijah was spared. Safety, refuge, sacrifices on the horn altar there. When men take hold of the horns of the altar, they see it as a place of refuge for them. The logic is that the altar can protect me from God's retribution. It sure can protect me from man's judgment and retribution. So what's the significance of the altar burnt offering? Well, it's the place where sacrifices for sin are made so that God's people can be protected from His retribution, from His wrath, and safely enter His presence. That's the idea. This is all symbolic. We need something more than symbols, don't we? They had symbols. That's what they had. They had pictures. Calvary is the altar. The cross is the altar. That's our altar. Christ died for our sins. Romans 5.8 1 Peter 2.24 I like that one very well. There are many passages dealing with this. But Christ dying for our sins. We must trust in that. Verse 24 says, Who Himself bore our sins. He took on our sins. We placed, or He took our sins, we placed our sins on Him in His own body on the tree, the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. We traded our sin for His righteousness. Do you like that? Jesus Christ is the altar. We need a better sacrifice in the Old Testament. We need a better altar. We need to really get our sins taken away because those sacrifices never took away the sins. They symbolically did it looking forward to the time when it would truly happen at the cross. We look back to the cross. They looked forward to the cross. That's what this whole tabernacle was about. By the way, that's why we don't have an altar up here. We have a picture of a cross, right? That, that, that wooden cross. We really don't have any furniture dealing with that. And uh, a lot of churches don't. Uh, it's not because we're missing that. Uh, we don't have an altar. We do have an altar. We don't have one, but we do have an altar. The altar is Christ. Right? Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He is the altar. His blood satisfies the wrath that the Father has on our sin. The blood makes the purchase price, right? The animal's blood, Jesus' blood. 
We're safe from the wrath of God if we go and cling to those horns. He brings us right into the presence of God. Christ is our safety, our refuge, even in danger. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 25. Hebrews uh, really explains a lot what happens in the Old Testament. shows a fulfillment. Hebrews 9, verse 25. Start verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. All of these were copies, right? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that He should offer Himself often, as the high priest enters the most high place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, look at this, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Did you just catch that? That is an incredible verse. That sets us free from all of the bondage of the law that was a picture, and it shows us, here's what happened. He put it away. It was expiated. It was removed. Don't you like that? We would have to continually keep offering sacrifices if it wasn't the one final one. He says, once. since the foundation, Now at once, right at this time period, what He did... He put away sin. It's been taken care of. Are you one that has identified with that taking away of the sin? If you identify with that, you are His. He's put His righteousness on you. What about the priesthood then? What do we do with that? He is the sacrifice. He is the altar. All we're doing is look at Old Testament teaching. Then we're looking at the New Testament. We're not prescribing our own kind of worship here. We're doing what the historical church has always done. They take this and say, okay, if Christ fulfilled it all, what about the priesthood? What does the New Testament say about that? Well, He's the great high priest, right? We are priests who minister daily the sacrifices that are spiritual and acceptable to God. He said, Dennis, what do we do about all the priests? I dare you to look at God's Word. Look. Look in Romans chapter 12. 1 and 2. This is incredible, folks. Because of the New Testament. We don't have the tabernacle anymore. We don't have those animal sacrifices anymore. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What? What does He want to be presenting up there? Does He want us to be presenting animals? No, He says, present your bodies. A living sacrifice. What happens at the altar? An animal is being killed. He's going to be dead. Right? We are offering up living sacrifices. Right here, at this moment, we're offering up living sacrifices. Every moment of our day, perpetually, we should be offering up sacrifices. What else does he say? Holy, acceptable to God, 
which is your reasonable service. That word would be what the priests would have done. Their service. They're serving. They're working. They did that all day long. Never sat down. There are no chairs in that tabernacle. Do you guys see any chairs? Any seats? They had to continually do the sacrifices all day long. They would just keep doing them and doing them and doing them. For years and years and years, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, never sit down. The work was never done. Jesus Christ sat down in the heavens because the work was done. It's finished, Jesus says. And he says here, here are the priests. We have priests sitting in this room today. Who are they? He says, okay, we have reasonable service. If we were to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, we get something very incredible here. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Back up to verse 4. Let's read this. Coming to Him as to a living stone, Talking about Christ, a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He's the gold. Now watch. Let's read this again. You also, as living stones, you, you are the tabernacle. You are the temple. Are being built up a spiritual house. What else does he call them? A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow. Go to Philippians 4, verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What is this? It's a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice? It's not an animal. It's the gifts that they're giving for the saints, the other people, in the body of Christ, and things that they have done there. The fruit. The fruit is the very work that they have done. And they're offering that. That is what is acceptable to God today. It's not that sweet-smelling aroma of the animal. Um, Keep going here. Let's go to... Hebrews 13, verse 15 and 16. What kind of sacrifices do we offer then? If we're priests, what do we offer? Verse 15. Therefore, by Him, let us continually, there's that continual, offer the sacrifice of what? Praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, what comes out of our mouth as we praise God. Here's how we as a priesthood offer up sacrifices. Giving thanks to His name. 
but do not forget to do good, to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. What kind of sacrifices does He want from us? He wants the fruit of our lips, praising God, giving thanks to Him. He wants us to have um, the good works towards people. Right? Those are the sacrifices that He now uh, requires. Fascinating. Fascinating. Remember the passage, we are a chosen generation? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Watch this. This is incredible. Ready for some meat here? Here we go. But you, he's speaking to Christians. Peter, this is Peter speaking. You are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A priesthood. Royal. We're kings. We're priests. A holy nation. His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness. You were in the dark. Into His marvelous light. A light is just shed upon you. Before you didn't know, all of a sudden the light is there and it turns on and all of a sudden you start seeing things that you never saw before. The light is there who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What are we? We're a chosen generation. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're God's special people that we proclaim praises. That is what we offer up to Him. Our sacrifices, our spiritual sacrifices, they're acceptable because it's through the person of Christ. Because of what He did at the cross, now He accepts us because of what Christ did. Basic, isn't it? This is so basic. This is the heart of the Gospel. What's the significance of this burnt offering then? It's the place where sacrifices for sin are made. So that God's people can be protected from His wrath. And they can safely enter His presence. Okay. We have two other things left in this chapter. This is going to go by very quick. Ready? We spent most of the time on that altar. Because that's the place of refuge and safety. What's the next one? I'm not going to read it. Uh, I'll just give you a highlight verse or two here. In, in Exodus 27, which is where we're operating out of, right, is where we're coming from, he says in verse 9, you shall also make the court of the tabernacle. And he starts mentioning the different uh, directions. For the south side, there shall be hangings from the court made of fine woven linen. There is the, there's the way that you would enter and you'd go in there and that would be into the courts. You might have uh, something of the courts. And again, you're just going to see everything in there. It's the whole whole thing. And that's the altar and uh, uh, everything around there. there. There would be the courts right in here, all around in that area. Um, refuge had dividing walls. Uh, you can only go so far. All temples and sanctuaries in the ancient world, okay, take all those religions that were outside of the way that God had prescribed to worship. They were wrong. But just take those it's interesting that they would have a, a space and they'd demark the sacred from the profane. You have sacred, which is holy. The profane is 
just the average, normal, daily, secular thing. The full thing, right? Today, as a Christian, everything should be holy in our lives, right? But anyway, what, what's the deal? They would set off a space that would be a holy place. The idea was holiness. That's what the Old Testament is about. This is a place representing holiness. It's, it's the idea of separation. As far as you can go is right up in that first court, right? And later, temples in Israel's history had courtyards. Solomon built the great temple designed just like this, but only in a perfect, or uh, in a uh, one that would not be packed around and carried wherever they went all over the desert. It was a place in Jerusalem where they, they built that. In fact, we know that Herod's temple, who was later to come along, who later when we see uh, the time of Christ, he had, Herod had four courtyards. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. The courtyard there is where the priests would work through, Right? There was a courtyard for Jewish males. They couldn't go as far as the priests, but they could go further than the Jewish females. And then there was a courtyard called the Courtyard of the Gentiles, and that's outside, way outside this whole tent thing here, you know, with the linen fence and such. God established a place, though, that the, even the Gentiles would be there, but they were separated by dividing walls. And there were actually walls in Jerusalem whenever the temple was made. Separating. Kind of leaves you lacking, doesn't it? Josephus, who was a historian back at the time that Christ lived, reports in his history book that there was even a sign warning that if Gentiles entered into any of the other courts they would face death. I am not kidding you. This is as far as you Gentiles can come, no further. Stop here. This is it. Same way with the women. They can only go so far. So you have classes of people. They're separated. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Place for the priest. Place for the men. Place for the women. And a place for those other guys. Christ broke the wall. Broke all the walls. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's another thing that was fulfilled. He just fulfills everything. Still looking for Him to come back. He still has those things to do, but as far as the work of salvation, it's been done. Look at this. This is great. To Gentiles. How many people here are uh, not Jews? We have, we have some Jews here? No? Okay. Well, this is us. This is for us. What would you, what would you like, how would you like it if we were still considered to be outside? It'd be kind of sad, wouldn't it? Here it is. For He, Himself, is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Look at verse 18 just to save some time. For through Christ, through Him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. You have the whole Trinity involved right there. Him is Christ. Spirit is Holy Spirit. The Father is the Father. We have access right on uh, all the way through there. That's what happened. 
This is what happened in, in time and space, folks. And in a spiritual way. It's a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus has brought reconciliation. We were enemies. We hated Him. We didn't want anything to do with Christ because He takes away our fun. I want to do whatever I want to do, right? But Jesus, whenever He comes to us and turns the light on, He has a sacred space for all of His worshipers, Jew, Gentile like It doesn't matter. It's all broken down. Men, women, they have access right into God just the same way. The, there are no more separated classes of people. That was His redemptive work. That's what happened there. He brought together those who had been separated as they believed in Him. One last part, and we'll write the end, I promise. The perpetual burning lamp found in verse 20 and 21 and of our Exodus 27. Hey, I'm under I'm under an hour. I might make it. <laughs> All right, gotta go. <laughs> the people never get to see in the holy place, right? They wouldn't see this. That's the lampstand made of gold. Wow, that's gold. Been a beautiful thing to see. There was light in the tent all the time, all the time. Had to have light in there. Why is that? Oh, well, if you don't have light in there, you're going to have darkness. God is a God of light. This is representing God and that whole holy place there. Uh, there would have been darkness. The veil would uh, shut that off, right? From the outside. No light come from there. Even through at nighttime, there you have that light. The symbolism is continually a refueled lamp. They would use pure oil olive oil, and that was the presence of the unseen God. You don't go in and see that, but you know the light is on. That's what the priests did. They continually kept bringing the oil in there, kept it lit. The presence of God is there. Now I want to show you something. This is, this is out of the book of Revelation, right in the very last chapter of the whole revealed Word of God. One of the last things that He has done and spoke speaking to us. Look at this. This is just awesome. When we go to see God and His glory, and we'll be glorified too, we're going to see Christ as He is. Look in verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, no light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign they shall reign. Remember we read earlier a kingdom, a priest or a royal priesthood. Royal king reign. They shall reign forever and ever. Wouldn't this be a great video game? Oh man, this would be awesome, wouldn't it? And you finally get to the last level where you are actually in the presence of God. Hey, maybe we can make some money. No. Just kidding. I mean, this is reality. This is incredible. We're going to be in the presence of God. No need for a sun anymore. It'll always be light. You won't have to worry about sleeping because you will never get tired because you have a body of glory. I guess if you wanted to take a nap, I guess you could, but there's so much to see out there. It's going to take an eternity. Why would you want to take a nap? Who knows? I'm excited. Folks, Either this is one of the greatest hoaxes and lies of all time of human history, or it's true. And if it's true, I want it. 
You guys want this? We've gone back into history and we see what God did through His great pictures that He had in the tabernacle. And now we see that that represented the present. We go right in to the Holy of Holies today. We don't have to go to a priest to make sure that He goes in for us. He says, you have direct access. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We have that. That is awesome. That is one of the best things that I've ever heard testimonies of people. You mean, I don't have to go through anybody anymore? I can go directly to Him and pray? Yeah. Isn't that one of the greatest things that, that could, you could ever hear? The tabernacle seems so distant to us, but they're valuable lessons, aren't they? They give us great illustrations of the reality of Christ. And that's what we're doing as we go through here. It shows what He has done. We have true safety. Safety that transcends physical death. People can die. They all die. We all die. But you know what? And, and there can be danger in our lives. We're not ever saying you're ever going, not ever going to go through danger anymore. Everything's going to go just fine as a Christian now. It's not what we're saying. But we are saying you can have safety even in the midst of a horrible time because you've taken hold of the horns of the altar. That's Christ. You are spared the torment of body and soul and hell. You are guaranteed resurrection life. Why wouldn't you want it, right? There is true safety. There is true danger. But the refuge is Christ alone. The danger is found in the places of refuge even. But we run into the person of Christ. There are dangerous things out there if we're not trusting in Him. And they're all offering great things what or who are we hoping for in our eternity? Are you holding on to God's goodness? Or are you holding on to your own performance, hoping that you'll be good enough? Are you holding on to your own religion rather than a relationship? Are you holding on to the hope that your good deeds will somehow outweigh your evil deeds at the judgment? You're most to be pitied if you are. Because the horns you're holding, in that sense, will crumble right in your hands. You'll fall right into the pits of hell. When you're holding on right now for refuge, if that be Christ, or is it something else? Flee to the arms of Christ is what we say. Hold on to those horns. There's only one safe place in the universe. We're going to have a word of prayer and we're going to finish with a song. If I can have my guys in the band to come up.